everyone, and welcome to another episode of the No Low Ballers podcast. I'm Logan Medish of High Caliber History, your host. I'm joined around the table, Alan from Gunbroker, Dan from Go Wild, our two resident movie nerds. Uh, but our special guest is really, really someone that especially Alan, has been super excited for. We've talked movie guns on the show before, but now we have the authority for movie guns. Uh, as Larry looks around, yes, we're <laughs> looking at you. We have Larry Zanoff from Independent Studio Services. Larry, thanks for joining us on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, when we were, when we were putting together kind of a wish list of guests we would have liked to eventually have, um, uh, Larry and, and Terry Shepard were like right on the top of my list because it combines... I love movie guns, I love firearms in general, and I've always been a big fan of the science shows like Mythbusters, so Hollywood weapons you take and hit all of my sweet spots in one area, so um, I'm really excited by this episode. Well, good. Yeah. So uh, tell us, Larry, a little bit, give us a little history with you and ISS and what exactly that means for the firearms industry and the movie industry and the intersection there. Well, Independent Studio Services is the largest prop house in North America. Probably the largest prop house in the world, to be honest with you, but we're not going to lay claim to that <laughs> quite yet. Um, and we have the largest rental armory, uh, again, in North America, probably in the world. A <laughs> uh, little over 17,000 firearms in our inventory. And we provide firearms to the entertainment industry. So people always key in on television and film, but the entertainment industry as a whole is much larger than that, right? There's television, there's movies, there's commercials that you need it for sometimes. Mm -hmm. There's stage plays, there's live performances of different kinds, there's still photography, uh, print articles and things like that. So anything at all that's within the entertainment industry, we provide firearms for that. That's interesting. Yeah, that's way broader than than what I even thought of. It, it didn't occur to me with plays and other live yeah. production. That, that had, did, no, no. Yeah. I mean, mo movies and, and uh, TV is, of course, where it stops. But if you think about especially, you know, California, even live actions like the, the old West worlds, I'm sure there's there's probably some some support you get there, too. Absolutely. We do live performances at different venues, you know, different um, parks and live performances. We support that. And uh, believe it or not, in the last oh, 10 to 15 years, the largest growth has been seen in the video game industry oh, yeah. as far as our business yeah, goes. Sure. Uh, we provide um, visual scanning for firearms. We provide all of the live fire sound recording mm. for the different games. Won't mention any franchises or anything, but when you play your game and you select an AK-47, um, the people who are playing these games, they're much more educated than they were 10, 15 years ago. Oh, yeah. right. And especially with veterans coming out of the military now, they know, the gamers know what an AK-47 sounds yeah, like. It's sure. weird. When something shoots at you, you learn to recognize the sound <laughs> really, really it's fast. Really, yeah. It's yeah. strange <laughs> that way. And, and that kind of level of accuracy is what makes these games competitive. Mm -hmm. And so every game like that, every franchise, they strive for that accuracy, and we help support that uh, through our armory. 
Yeah, that's that's that makes huge. sense. Yeah, yeah, it, uh, you know. Well, didn't I see something that the game industry is a larger annual industry than than the film industry is these days? That wouldn't uh, surprise oh, me. Yeah. So, so a single game will now bring in more revenue than a single feature film. Yeah. So when, when you look at the amount of money that you're investing and the hours that you invest in a video game compared to, let's say, a blockbuster like Avengers Endgame or something like that, you put in 16 weeks of filming, 16 weeks of prep, 12 weeks of wrap, $350 million in a budget. You make a billion dollars back, but on a video game, what, one year... 20 people sitting at your computer. Yeah, 20, 20, you know, 20 people, one truckload of Red Bull. Um, <laughs> exactly. A bag of you Doritos know. and a bean bag. And, you know. and in a day, you'll make that billion back, yeah, right? Because it's, it's not $12 a ticket. It's sixty nine ninety nine for the game. Well, and you probably make that back in your pre-sales. Yeah, and then so you know, you got right. the new skins. And then you yeah, exactly. With, I mean, with Endgame, yeah. it's like, oh, we have the director's cut, so now you can buy that. Well, no, this is, you know, there's, Add there's on sales. Packs Absolutely. Yeah. Exactly. So, so, so are all the guns you provide, are they all? Let me turn myself up a little bit. <laughs> quite loud enough, because I've got an important question. <laughs> so... Uh, are all the guns you provide, are they all props that are rented, or are you also selling guns? Could, it, could a company say, hey, we want to have this AK-47 so that over the next two years as we're rolling out game updates, we can rescan or do motion capture or anything with it? So we do not sell firearms. Okay. We, we are a rental business, period. Um, even if it's a prop gun, even if it's a non-functioning firearm, you wouldn't let anyone... No. For us, it's a prop um, again, I work in the weapons department, but whether it's a pair of sunglasses or whether it's a cell phone or whether it's a firearm, be it rubber replica or real, um, we earn our living by renting the same item over and over and over again. Right. So first of all, from an economic point of view, it doesn't make sense to just sell it once and then not, not sure. have it. Secondly, um, we don't sell the firearms because of a liability issue. Sure. If we alter the firearm to shoot blanks, we don't want it getting out there into the public sphere because if someone doesn't understand how it was altered and right. then yeah, you know they, they don't know what's going on with it, there's there's a liability issue there. And then there's also like trade secrets. Why would we sell the firearm that's been altered for blanks so that someone else can copy how we did gotcha. it? You know, so it's a very small, tight community as far as the, the film industry goes, how we alter the firearms and things like that. So, no, we don't sell firearms. Okay. Well, and, and that's something I think people also that are familiar with ISS always forget is everyone thinks you as the firearm house, but you're a full service prop agency. Indeed. I mean, you've, you, you, can, you outfit the full film, not just the armory. So, or, I mean, obviously you work on the firearm side and the armor services, but ISS does it all. Everything. And we also do it wor worldwide, right? Mm -hmm. So we're in Europe, we're, we're in the UK, we're in Southeast Asia, we're all over the United States, Canada, Mexico. Hence the South international America. part of international exactly. services. You know, yeah. um, and we do everything. So when you come and you, our, our goal is one-stop shop. So our main customer is the prop master or mm -hmm. property master. And when they walk in and they say, hey, we need, you know, an AK-47, they'll walk into the firearms department and we'll be able to provide that. But they can also go into the rentals department and we'll provide the web gear with the correct pouch for that AK-47. Mm -hmm. And then we'll have the helmet for that particular combatant. And we'll have, you know, sunglasses and knee pads and elbow pads and whatever else you need to outfit. Oh, we got a 
team of 12 guys, we can outfit, outfit them head to toe with whatever, whatever you need. And again, not just military gear, but anything, you know, sporting equipment, kayaks, sunglasses, cell phones, anything you need, you can get it under our roof. If we can't sell it, to you or rent it to you, you know, because we have it on the shelf, we'll go buy it and then we'll rent it to you. There if, you we go. Can't, <laughs> if we can't buy it, we have the ability to make it. Mm, that's you know? awesome. So if you yeah. can't get it under our roof, you're pretty much out of luck. <laughs> right. you, know? you probably can't get it, period. It's right. exactly well, now, like now that. Now I'm so tempted to try and play Stump Larry. <laughs> but I don't think I can do it. <laughs> well, so Toyota Hilux. Can I get a Toyota Hilux? That's an easy one. <laughs> <laughs> so, be, I mean, because you guys are everywhere and do everything, you know, Give people, uh, you know, an example or two of, of, of a recent film that, you know, that they've seen or, or a TV show that they've seen that, that it was ISS Firearms in that. Right across the hall here, they're selling Spyderco knives, right? And I happened to be talking to a gentleman there, and he mentioned seeing one of their Spydercos in a movie called Rampage, mm-hmm. right? Well, we placed that knife in the okay. movie Rampage, you okay. know. Um, any of the Marvel movies, if you see firearms or weaponry and stuff like that, that's our equipment and our props uh, in in those films. Any of the NCISs or the CSIs or all of those police okay. procedurals, all of our props, all of our firearms. So uh, we do on a good year, we do somewhere between 75 to 85% of all firearms that you see in television, movies, things like that is probably from ISS. The, the lineage ones are what I love. Like, you know, John McClane's Beretta 92 and Die Hard is also uh, Riggs's in, in Lethal, Lethal Weapon. Weapon. I mean, I, I, exactly. I'm just curious, and I, you have no way of knowing this top of your head. How, how many times has that 92 been through? I mean... I couldn't tell you that off the top of my head, but because of ATF regulations, uh, and this is an important note that the public should know, there is no free pass for Hollywood. No. We have to abide by all the rules and regulations that yeah. everybody else has to. And so ATF requires us to have the same tracking and the same reporting that any FFL holder would have. And so I could go to our computer system and punch in a specific serial number, mm-hmm. and it would list every project that it's been on. That's so, really cool. So, yeah. ba- so basically, <coughs> my, my dream of an uh, Internet Movie Firearms database and Ancestry.com mashup can happen. All right. <laughs> yeah. So if, now, <laughs> if a shoot location is somewhere that has some sort of restriction on a firearm that they want to use, are you like, we can't have that firearm in that state or, or that country? You know, like if there was some country that had a suppressor ban or something. Yeah, so th- there's there's ways to deal with that. So a good example, Extraction One, huge film, highest grossing film that Netflix had as an independent, you know, net Netflix production. Mm-hmm. We provided all the props and all the firearms for that and everything. Um, that originally was supposed to be the launch of Netflix India. Mm. Okay. And a lot of the film was was based in India. A lot of the filming locations were going to be there. Unfortunately, the regulations of the Indian government, uh, after many, many months of trying, did not allow us to import real firearms into India. Okay. They did not allow the production to fly a real helicopter in India. Those were all things that were restricted to law enforcement and military. Those were the only people who were allowed to do those things in India. And so the, the parts that were filmed in India were all done with rubbers and replicas. Mm-hmm. And then they hopped across the border to Thailand that had very 
similar geography and things like that. And we did the firing weapons with blanks and we flew helicopters and things like that. If it's done correctly, the viewing public never knows the, the difference. Exactly. So we do have so certain restrictions. Mm -hmm. um, for instance, we, we cannot export firearms to China. Mm. Our government has mm -hmm. certain issues. Um, there's ITAR, right? International sure. Trade Controls. We always have to respect those laws. There's certain sure. countries we cannot export things to. So th this idea that, oh, those guys in Hollywood, it's unfair, they get a pass. We, the public, can't have certain things, but they can't. That's not true. We right. have to abide by all the rules. All now, we may have permits and licenses that Joe Public doesn't sure. have. Right. But that's because we invest the money and we have the security in our building and we're open to 24 inspection by ATF and things like that that, that you may not want to have at your house. Right. <laughs> you don't want bars on your windows at your house and things like that. Um, but there is no free pass for, for Hollywood, and we do have to abide by all those same restrictions. And I, I, I do want to bar w with a window in my house, uh, but not bars yeah, on my windows. Yeah. Totally different subject, yeah. and I'm right. with you there. You and know. I think that that's an, a, a, a topic that is something that definitely needs to be discussed because people think, oh, what's a prop gun? Prop gun, it's not a real gun. Of course, there's been something that's been very in the news over yeah. the last year about a prop gun, and, so, and you see in comment sections, people don't understand that an actual live working firearm in the movie industry and in the TV industry is called a prop, but it's not like, like a cap gun that you would buy. The, you know, it, it's a real gun and it's a prop. Like it's a Venn diagram that they kind of cross. And a lot of people don't understand that real firearms are props in that yeah. sense of the word, yeah. right? So, you know, I, I always uh, try to be very careful. Uh, you'll notice I have not used the term prop gun yeah. since we sat down here. Right. They are firearms. Yep. A prop gun to me is a rubber or a replica. Right. Uh, because you're right. You know, the, the word prop and then gun after it gives the impression that it's fake. It's not real. Right. Um, a prop is anything you pick up. If an actor picks it up and does something with it, that becomes a prop. So a prop could be this pen. But you wouldn't but say, oh, it's a prop pen. Exactly. Like, don't think about it like exactly. that. Exactly. And so uh, I think it's important education-wise that we use the correct terminology. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't use that term prop gun when I'm talking <laughs> about blank firing firearms. Sure. Right. Know, it's a firearm, and that's why you have an armorer out there, and that's why you have permits and licenses and training, different things uh, like that. Someone says, prop, hey, go get the prop gun. I'm going to come back with a, with a with rubber, rubber prop. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because that's, that's what that is. Right. So the, the one I always see questioned a lot are how, we all know there are certain actors with certain criminal records that have made them a felon. And you see them in, in certain action movies. Are, are those all rubber ducks? Or are, are you pretty much off limits to getting them? Even a rel even a, a, a blank flying modified firearm, or are they so stuck with r the rubber guns? Yeah, good question. So again, in 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 the uh, spirit of accuracy, uh, I don't want to use the term convicted felon. I'm going to use the the more accurate term, which is prohibited person. Okay, mm -hmm. makes sense. Because there are some misdemeanors. Right. That can True. also prohibit you yeah. from holding a firearm. That makes from sense. Yep. A firearm. Yep. And yes, there are people that they're they're wonderful people, but they may have something in their past that that prohibits them from possessing a firearm. Yeah. You know, if if you denounce your citizenship, you can be you lose <laughs> mm -hmm. your your firearms rights and everything. So it's not necessarily a criminal issue. Sure. Um, sure. So so let's use that term uh, prohibited person. Yeah, and yes, sense. if you are a prohibited person and you're on a film set and, and you think that 
you see them in a film and they're, they have a firearm, it's not a real firearm. Mm -hmm. Assuming that it was filmed in the United States. Because if they're, you know, filming uh, a movie in, in another country and they are not a prohibited person there. in that country, then, think th of that. Nope. then they have to abide by the, by the rules of that country. And, you know, so there's, there's so many things that an armor on set has to think about and know and deal with. You know, we, we are armors. We have to make sure that the firearm runs correctly. We're technical advisors. We have to make sure that the actor handles the firearm correctly. We're historians. We've got to make sure it's the right firearm for the film. Mm. We have to be a safety officer on set. We have to know the legalities of that country. It's like I grew up wanting nothing more than to be a gunsmith, sit at a counter at, at a bench and tinker with firearms, and yet I have to be on the phone with the State Department worrying about ITAR controls and export mm. permits and things like that. And, and the viewing public sees none of that, yeah. right? All they see is 90 minutes up on, on, on screen. And I think that's one of the reasons I always encourage people to watch the credits, <laughs> stay for the end of the movie, not right. just because of the after credit scene, but watch <laughs> the movie, read the names of the people. There's, there's thousands of people that invest a lot of blood, sweat, and tears and a lot of hours away from their families and stuff like that, doing this behind-the-scenes work just so that the public can have that 90 minutes of, of escapism well, you know, to watch a movie. And it's one of those unfortunate positions that if you do your job really, really well, no one will ever know it. They only know it when something goes wrong. And so that's a good point that, um, that you brought up. That is the only reason that I got involved with Hollywood Weapons. Mm. Because when they came to me and asked me to be involved with Hollywood Weapons, my goal was to put a spotlight on that behind-the-scenes mm. armor guy that never got the credit. Yeah. And it was like, you know, I, I don't necessarily want to be in front of the camera. In fact, I was the guy all through high school that sat in the back of the class and never uttered a word, never raised his hand. But if we're going to do a show like that, then I wanted the public to be able to see how much safety gets built into yeah. television mm -hmm. and film work and all the behind the scenes kind of stuff and everything. And, and that's one of the things I think we highlight in Hollywood Weapons of all the effort that goes into that 90 seconds of the actual event on camera and that's a lot of the feedback we get too from our viewers of my gosh i never realized how much effort goes into that one specific scene right and so i i'm curious because i know a, a, a number of the, the listeners and viewers will be curious about this and so many of us well I, I won't speak for anyone else in the room but myself you know that people have asked me how did you get into this how did you do that and i i have fallen ass backwards <laughs> into some of the coolest stuff you yep. know yeah um uh, but so so that larry how in the world did you end up as as an armorer in in this business so my stock answer for that is usually uh i was in the wrong place at the wrong time and i had a misspent youth <laughs> that's usually the way i describe it but um the Reader's Digest version is um, my father, may he rest in peace, was a, a mechanical engineer who always worked for defense contracting companies. Um, I was born in Philadelphia, but at a very, very young age, at about four and a half years old, uh, my father got a job working for the Israeli Ministry of Defense. Oh. And so we moved to Israel and I grew up there, uh, did military service there, uh, went through a couple of wars there. Um, my father was a competitive shooter, so there were always firearms in the house. I wound up going shooting with him quite a bit. Um, 
wound up wanting to be a gunsmith. That's just, again, what I always wanted to be, just tinker with guns. Um, when I got discharged, I came back to the States to go to college to learn how to be a gunsmith. Wound up being a little bit more expensive than I had initially uh, figured on. Uh, so I started working uh, primarily to save up money to go to college, uh, but wound up with a degree in law enforcement and the administration of justice, worked in law enforcement a little bit, private security a little bit while I was working towards my degree in, in firearms technology, uh, then wound up you know, achieving my dream, working in the firearms mm -hmm. industry, mm -hmm. uh, in the manufacturing realm. Um, unfortunately, the 94 assault weapon ban put the company I work for out of business. Okay. And luckily for me, or unluckily, depending <laughs> upon how you want to look at it, uh, right about that time, someone in Hollywood was looking for someone who was a good gunsmith, but they weren't looking for someone to engrave on guns or carve wooden stocks. Mm -hmm. They needed someone who could headspace a 50 cal. Mm -hmm. They needed someone who had real experience with military-type weapons. Because how many movies do you see where the hero gun is a hunting rifle? No. You want, you know, machine guns and yeah. things like that. And so they called the college where I went to college and said, hey, do you have someone who's a good, good gunsmith but that also has, has military, military yeah. experience? Right. And they said, oh, this is the guy you need to call. And so I got a call out of the blue. You know, like you said, just kind of fell into it. Right. And for several years in this industry, I've been doing this for 25 years now, uh, but for several years, I stood at a lathe in a mill, and I was the guy who was converting the guns to fire blanks and things like that. Now, of course, I deal with the customers. I put orders together. I go out on set. I train actors. I do safety training and different things like that. I don't stand at a milling machine anymore. I still keep my hand in it when the gunsmiths are like developing or blanking a new gun. Figuratively. <laughs> yeah. Figuratively. <laughs> um, I'll help them figure out, you know, if there's problems or I'll still test fire things uh, like that. But that that's pretty much how, how I fell into well, it. I, I think you landed in a good spot because you are not nearly grouchy enough to be a gunsmith. <laughs> that <laughs> is so true. Well, you don't know me well enough. <laughs> true. true. You, know, you, you, you did mention training actors, so I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot. I'm not going to ask who the worst is because I don't want to put you there. But okay. if you had an actor that is just fantastic to work with, they, you, you don't have to worry about gun safety. In fact, they're probably the ones pushing their colleagues. Who's the best one out there? Well first, well, well, first of all, no matter how good they are, I always worry about firearm of safety. Course. As sure. you have to. That is your job. And, and I will tell you that I have been doing this for 25 years in the film industry and have worked with firearms all my life. But every day that I'm out on set, I have butterflies in my stomach. Which is no matter how many times I've done this. Which so is why you get the job, because that's how you should Exactly. Be. And that, that's my philosophy as well. Um, but... I will tell you that, by and large, I've worked with many, many very good actors when it comes to firearms, safety, and things like that. Um, most actors that, are, that you think of as good actors, mm -hmm. their skill is mimicry. They're very good. If you show them the right thing to do, their skill is they can pick that up very, very quickly and mimic what, what you're showing them. They, they take direction well. Exactly. They may so not understand why they're doing what they're doing, but they know that they're doing what you told them to do. That's a good description maybe, but, but they, they follow direction well and they do what you tell them. Right. And so if you have a good armorer out there that trains them well, they will pick up the, the pertinent points and and repeat that um i worked with robert de niro he's very good he, he shows up on time he listens to what he needs to do and and he does it well um tom Selleck, 
great guy, very firearm knowledgeable. Yep. You've got people like, you know, um, uh, oh gosh, I just uh, drew a blank. Uh, your your hero from Die Hard. Oh, uh, Bruce Willis. Uh, Bruce, Willis. Bruce Willis. You know, you got people like that that are recreational shooters on their own, uh, and not just um, you know people in front of the camera, people behind the camera too. You got Michael yeah. Mann, who phenomenal oh director and has made some of the greatest firearms related films in Hollywood. Who he himself is very knowledgeable about firearms and and that knowledge and passion that he has comes through in his films, whether it's machine guns in Heat or flintlocks in Last of the Mohicans, you see that. And so um, there's there's just so many out there that, it, sure. that it's hard to even, you know, come up with a list of names. Were you on Last of the Mohicans? I was not. That, uh, that was a little bit before my time, but it is one of my favorite films. I remember hearing that story about how hard Daniel Day-Lewis worked on being able to run and reload at the same time. Yeah. So, so Daniel Day-Lewis, um, he, he did a phenomenal job on that film as far as the firearms go, but he's a method actor, and he did everything phenomenally in that film. Yeah. Yeah. He, like, went and hunted and lived out in the woods for several weeks on his own yeah. Yeah. just to get the idea of what being, like, a frontiersman was. And every, an amazing actor. He's legendary in his presence yeah. and stuff. Yeah, yeah. just I, amazing. Because I was wondering, I know, like, when we're training some folks, if I've got, you know, gun guys in there, they're always harder to train than the newbies who are open-minded. I, I didn't know if that kind of applied the same way. Like, we all know Tom Selleck in our space. Definitely a big gun guy. Joe Montaigne. Yeah. Joe Montaigne, yep. yeah. Very, you know, and, and Tom is a great proponent for gun safety. I mean, yep. he's he took on Rosie fantastically. Do guys like that kind of sometimes be a little harder to take direction from? Or not Tom specifically, but just the recreational gun yeah. guys who think, oh, I know this stuff. Yeah, you know, you, you get out on set and, and the, in the perfect world – you're dealing with a bunch of adults and a bunch of professionals mm -hmm. and you need to create a rapport with your actors because one thing you got to remember about the armor we are right there front and center on set the entire time yeah. when you hand an actor a firearm and you step away we call it stepping away you're literally just stepping out of frame. Mm -hmm. So you're still within arm's reach. You don't mm -hmm. walk away and you're, you're, you know, you're 100 yards away. You know, Let me go get a cup of coffee. Yeah, it or. doesn't happen like that with the firearms. That might be makeup, wardrobe, and, and things like that. But the firearms person is literally right there. When they yell cut, an armor is supposed to rush in as the first person and relieve the, the actor of the firearm. And you stand there and you chit-chat with the actor. It's like, oh, that take was really good. You know? Or they might say, hey, did that look right? Did I do something wrong with the gun or something like that? And so you're, you're actually right there with them, and you develop a rapport. And so you need to develop that rapport right from the get-go. Sure. Yeah. And, and the thing I usually start out with is, you know, hey, have you done this before? Oh, yeah, I've done this a thousand times. So, oh, great. So you already know, and then you list everything. And you kinda, you're basically saying, I don't care what you've <laughs> done before. Yeah. For mm -hmm. me on this film... I need you to do it this way. We were, I were on events know. for, in my former life, ran events for media all the time. And mm -hmm. you, you see the same faces, the same things. And it's like, guys, I know you've heard this already, but as you know, you're going to hear it from me one more time. Let's go yeah. over everything. Yeah. Because yeah. Yeah. If, if I understand the process right, it literally the last thing that happens before the action is called is the firearm is placed. And the first thing that happens when cut is called is the firearm is taken back in your possession. Correct. And I mean, there's, there's situations, depending upon the geography of the set, 
or what we call the gunfight choreography, because that's really what it is. Yeah. You know, um, the situation may be so uh, unique that we actually roll cameras. Like you're standing there with the actor, I'm holding the firearm. We roll the cameras and, and the armorer will look at the first AD, the first assistant director and go, okay, Logan, are, are we ready? Uh-huh. And they'll go, okay, Larry, do it. And I place the firearm in the actor's hand and then I step out of frame and then they do the scene, yell cut, and then you step in and retrieve the firearm. So it's really not this kind of like, okay, everybody clear out. And the armor goes like, okay, you're on your own and, and right. walks away. If you're doing your job correctly as, as a motion picture armor, that's not the way it is. Yeah. Like you are right there. there the there's no line track. at the truck in the morning like at police roll call where everyone's just grabbing the rifle off the rack and then at the day they bring it back. Yeah, yeah. Right. it doesn't, doesn't work that yeah. way. So one or at least shouldn't work that way. <laughs> so one thing I'm curious about is as we get ready to wrap up here, there, you, know, you mentioned that you're often very intimately involved in converting the guns so that they fire blanks and work properly. Is there a particular type of firearm that is, has, you know, is the most difficult to try to convert to make it fire blanks safely and you know is, is there one you're like ah oh, crap we got to do one of these or you know are you sure you want this one right <laughs> yeah and why is it the minigun <laughs> <laughs> actually the minigun is, is is easy to fire blanks with yeah, right it's, because it's all electric it's all run by an electric motor the ones that are difficult you know you you have gas operated firearms what we call like direct blowback mm -hmm. type firearms right. Those are fairly easy, right? When you start getting into short recoil firearms, those get a little bit more difficult. The long recoil firearms, those are really difficult to get the fire blanks. So essentially the ones that are harder to make operate as a gun are the ones that are harder to operate as a blank. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess exactly. that's why I don't see vintage Browning Auto 5s used a lot. In <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, if, if you think about it, you know, people have this illusion oh i know how they make those fire blanks they clip the springs and they do the, it's like no no no, no. Yeah. we try to keep the function of the gun as close to the real functioning as possible mm -hmm. with as little alteration as possible yeah but but we still have to alter them quite a bit and so uh, every gun has its own little trick every time a new model comes out mm -hmm. it's not like oh you just do xyz and it'll fire a blank we have to create new technology every single time a firearm comes out and even like a glock if they change a generation if they alter the design or they modify the design within the same firearm mm -hmm. we're like oh darn they just moved that part 25 thousandths or they changed a spring we can't modify it that way anymore oh. now we have to come up with a new way of doing it so that's fascinating um, it's also one point that i really want to stress here some people don't think about if you were a police officer or in the military and you had to draw your firearm in the mm. line of duty right. and it malfunctioned, you're trained to clear that firearm and keep on with the fight, right? Mm -hmm. But on a film set, if that firearm malfunctions, you've ruined the entire take. Right. There's helicopters overhead. There's special effects explosions going off, and it was all timed on your gunshot, right? Mm. Cost a lot of money three hours to reset everything and so on. Right. So we in the film industry actually strive for more reliability in a blank firing firearm that was never designed to fire blanks than is expected from a firearm in the real world firing live ammunition. 
Wow. Is that enough to give you white hairs? Oh, man. <laughs> <I got it. laughs> no, I mean, the, the hair is standing up at the back yeah. of the neck. All right, speaking that of, is so cool. Speaking of real guns and movies, you know, obviously the, the, the um, places like ISS don't really sell inventory. So, Correct. Um, you know, all the liability reasons, and they all seem to. So every time you see a, you know, a, a movie used one come up, you always think it's a joke. So mm-hmm. um, I did see an interesting set come through, and I'm, I'm curious to, to I, I want to uh, try a little stump Larry here. So we have a set of auto mags, which is, you guys know, I'm a big auto mag fan. Uh, it was a five-piece, or uh, an auto mag with five, five different barrels, chambered in 41, 44 auto mags, variation, different lengths, purchased by Clint Eastwood okay. as a gift for, of all people, Aaron Spelling. Okay. Oh, and the set okay. comes with the, the receipt in the order form signed by Clint. Anyone t- care to take a guess what the set went for? Value-wise, you mean? Well, uh, on auction, like what I sold for on GunBroker.com. I, yeah. I, can, I know exactly what the value of this particular set was to one person. <laughs> oh. Uh, yeah, I can't, I'm, I'm purposely not looking. <laughs> you can't read my handwriting anyway. Yeah, so. I'm going to say 27500 Okay. Dan? 33 I'm not a gambling man, so I'm not going to <laughs> guess on the dollar amount. It, hey, it's a five-piece barrel auto mag set. Seventy-five thousand probably isn't tremendously outrageous for that. Wow! And then you add in the historic provenance. Well, of oh, so it hasn't, pro- it hasn't sold yet. Oh no, it's sold. It's oh, seventy-five thousand. Okay. What the historic provenance is certainly interesting, but if everyone knows Clint's history and dislike of the auto mag, it's really <laughs> astounding. Maybe it was a gag gift for Aaron Spelling. There you, you go. Know, it was a white the, elephant. Well, the stories thing, were right? famously every time the auto mag, as you said, it's got to be more reliable than a real gun. Every time the auto mag failed on that movie, he threw it in the lake. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, an interesting story. Um, you remember the movie with Tom Hanks when he gets uh, shipwrecked on the island oh, when the uh, plane yeah. crashes? Castaway, yeah. yeah. Castaway. And, and he had the volleyball, Wilson, yeah. movie, right? And uh, I think it was at the Oscars one year, and they were interviewing him, and they they asked him, they said, hey, someone just auctioned off Wilson for, like, some ungodly amount of money. What do you think about that, that 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 prop went for so much money? And Tom said, "Uh, well, I'm sorry that someone paid that much money because I have Wilson at home. (laughs) You know, I kept that prop. And you know what? They're both right. Yeah. Because there is no such thing as the prop from the movie. Right, there's got to be multiples. There's multiples. Yeah. There's multiples of everything. Yeah. And so um, it's really hard to say that was the one. Sure. There, there's probably, we, we have a saying in the prop world, if you have one, you have none. Mm-hmm. So we always go out on set with at least two, probably four, maybe six. Uh, a good example was um, the movie with uh, Tom Cruise where he's the assassin Collateral. Right, collateral. collateral yep. Also a great, a great Michael, Michael Mann, Mann movie. Yeah. Um, that was basically Tom Cruise with one firearm throughout the whole movie on HK. We had like eight of those sure. on set yeah. every day with different levels of blanks and set up differently and so on. So um, even though that one went for 75000 and that's not... Oh, you know, the, these were not claimed to be movie-owned. Yeah, were, yeah, sure. But, but that, that historical attachment to mm-hmm. a film or a particular person... Uh, still, it's like, okay, so there were six of them. It's the only six in the whole world. Right. Yeah. You know, exactly. it's still, it still makes still it very, valuable. very special. Exactly. You know? I just want to know what Clinton Aaron Spelling talk about. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> well, Larry, we really appreciate you taking some time out and, and kind of, you know, pulling back the curtain, you know, so to speak, and giving us a, a glimpse as to what goes on. Because I, I know I have learned a ton. And, you know, in my previous life working at the NRA Museum, I've worked 
and handled with a lot of your firearms. Um, but I've learned so much more about that whole process just in the last 35 minutes or whatever. Yeah, I it's, can't wait till the next time I'm watching a movie with my wife and I pause and I go, you know, actually, I learned. <laughs> well, you know, what you do is pause in the credits and go, you see this guy? Yeah. <laughs> like I sat next to him. <laughs> and I do have to say that, you know, the NR, NRA Museum does a fabulous job of documenting the history of firearms, especially from an American firearms mm -hmm. tradition. Anyone who has not yet been to the NRA Museum, uh, you need to get in your car right now and go there uh, <laughs> and see it. And then to your point, I would also say um, you should look at films differently. When, when you watch films, it's entertainment, but you should think about, like, especially with firearms, how did they film that? Right. How, how did they set that up? How did they set the cameras up? And then, yes, watch the credits learn these names of the the people behind the camera who have put so much effort into making those those films and everything because it's a lot of work and yeah. you know they, they deserve the recognition and we, we and we appreciate all the work because it's our two hours of escape from That's the other right. 22 hours of well hell <laughs> <laughs> well larry thanks again appreciate you joining us my on the pleasure show. thank you thank you all right, well, that's it for us on this episode of the No Low Ballers podcast. Really appreciate you tuning in and joining us. Make sure you're subscribed on your favorite platform. Uh, give us some likes. Leave us some comments. We do read and respond to the comments. We appreciate all the feedback. Uh, we hope you guys enjoyed consuming this episode as much as we enjoyed making it because without you, there is no us. So that's it for us today, and we will see you right here again on the next episode of the No Low Ballers podcast. <laughs>